0: Okay, we are in chapter 30, paragraph 3 of the Confession, which is on page 56, and we are dealing with this chapter on the Lord's Supper. So we're in this uh, part that has laid out these two ordinances or uh, rituals that we keep uh, in the church as a reminder of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, Uh, and that these are uh, symbols that we have committed to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, so we dealt with that generally speaking in verse twenty eight or in chapter twenty eight then baptism specifically in chapter twenty nine and now the lord 's Supper in chapter thirty and our goal in these is to look at the scriptures and see and make sure that our own practices are con- conforming and aligning as closely as possible to what is found in the Bible okay so this week we'll do the confession and then there's a um, topic that we'll go from here and deal with as well in terms of the elements being used in the Lord's Supper, because typically what is what probably most of us have experienced in our life is not consistent with the confession or with what is taught in the Bible uh, in terms of the elements. Okay, so chapter 30, paragraph 3, let's pray first and then we'll read and do our Bible study. Father, we thank you for our time again to gather this afternoon, and Lord, to open your word. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your righteous judgments, and Lord, we pray that we would be content with the simple teaching of your word. Lord, not adding to it, Lord, not taking away from it, but Lord, observing everything written down, uh, Lord, in the law and the prophets and in the writings of the apostles, Lord, knowing that we cannot in any way, shape, or form, improve upon what you have delivered to us in your word. Lord, our duty is only to, to study, Lord, to know your will, and then to practice it and conform our life as closely as possible to the very life of Christ. And so, Lord, this is what we want to do, and we pray that you would help us to have his mind in all things, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 30, paragraph 3 says, in this ordinance, the Lord Jesus has appointed his ministers to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and in this way, to set them apart from a common to a holy use. They are to take and break the bread, take the cup, and give both to the communicants while also participating themselves. So here in the ordinance, in the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus has appointed the minister, the one who is leading in uh, this uh, ritual, in this ordinance of what is taking place. This is what is uh, to be expected or what is there assumed in the passages that these things are entrusted to the church and it's the duties of the elders of the church to make sure that these ordinances are being administered properly, right? It is They're the ones that have oversight over the church and it is their duty to make sure that the people are taking these in a proper way, right? Not in a way uh, that is improper, not in a way that brings disdain to Christ and dishonor to him, but that they are understood correctly through the proper teaching of the word and that they are being administered in the correct way to those who are uh, able to come and take those things. Here, the minister is to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine. So he is to pray, thanking God for these things, And bless them, right? Not that he's blessing them in a superstitious way so that uh, they are transformed into something other than what they are, but he's doing this in the sense that God will give to us grace and mercy. He will build up our faith. He will bless our taking of this uh, ritual of the Lord's Supper for the building up of our faith and recognizing. That what we're committing these things to is away from a common use and into a special use, right? They're not common, but it's becoming a holy use in that they're being used in our worship of God, right? And when these things are happening, this is no longer common, but it is holy, right? Because it's being used in the worship of God. And here the elements are bread and wine. These are the elements for the Lord's Supper. Bread representing the body of Christ which is the source of our spiritual life and that his body is broken for us and then wine which represents his blood the new covenant in his blood now that's the point that we'll come to later after we go through the paragraph is wine the issue of wine in the churches in America after the 1800s because this issue was a non-issue for the history of the church but it has become an issue in America, not in the rest of the world, but in America from the 1800s, the mid to late 1800s, and onward because of the prohibition movement in the United States. So that most churches, and probably most of the churches that we grew up in, at least my experience, is that we didn't use wine in the Lord's Supper, we used grape juice. Grape juice, wine was substituted with grape juice, but here they say wine, and I think it's clear and obvious, and we'll look at this later, that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, they were using wine, they weren't using grape juice. Grape juice, as it's known today, didn't exist until 1869. So it was impossible for it to be grape juice, but it's obviously wine, and it was born out of the Passover meal, which was obviously using wine as well, okay? So bread and wine are the elements that are to be used then the issue becomes if Jesus used wine and if that's what he's instituted, then do we as a church have the authority to change that to something else? Even if what we change it to is a close proximity to it, right, should we do that or should we just stick to what Jesus used and what was taught in the Bible? And I think that's the better way to go. Okay, so these things are set apart from common to holy use. They, the minister, are to take and break the bread. So take and break the bread in the presence of the people as a symbol of Jesus's body being given for us and then take the cup also you'll see there that what they were holding to and what they practiced was a common cup so not the couplets like what we have but the common cup as we read uh maybe the last time especially from the gospel of mark if you read in the gospel of mark it's very clear that they had one cup and then they shared it amongst themselves and that they passed it around and they all participated from the same cup. The importance of that symbolically is that our salvation has one source and the one source is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are all partaking of the same source of salvation, not one source for you and another source for me and another source for them, but all one common source of salvation. And then the minister gives both to the communicants while also participating in them themselves. So he gives it to those who are eligible and who are able to participate. He gives it to them, and then he also participates himself, showing that he himself is in need of the salvation of God, right? He is not, this would be like the priests of the Old Testament. They offered sacrifices for the people, but they also offered sacrifices for their own sins because they themselves were sinful people. And so also, this is for the good of the faith of the church and the elders are not excluded from that, but they're included, right? They need it for their own spiritual life and benefit as well. Okay, First Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11. This is the passage where the institution is most clearly explained, though it is sufficiently explained in the gospels here, it is given more uh, definition, more content in terms of when the apostle is explaining the purpose and the meaning of it. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 says, "'For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, "'that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. "'And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "'This is my body, which is for you. "'Do this in remembrance of me.' "'In the same way he took the cup.' Also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here this is what he received from the Lord. The apostle received this in a revelation from the Lord and now he's delivering it as a faithful apostle of Jesus Christ to the church, and giving it to them, and these are for our benefit. Or as we read earlier today from Psalm 119, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. God is the one who has ordained this, and then we are the ones who keep it. He gives his word, we keep or we follow his word. And this was the night that he was betrayed. This is a significant event. Don't we understand that? A person's last words or his last actions, if he knows that he's going to die and they offer him a last meal, he's not going to get something that he doesn't like, but something that he really enjoys. If he's able to speak and give his final words, he's going to say something significant, something important, especially if he's giving instructions to his followers, right? To his family, to his children, right? And so it is here. This was the night that he was betrayed. Jesus, knowing that he is about to go to his death. That this is, these are his final moments in terms of before his resurrection, his final moments with his disciples. So this is not an insignificant event. It is a very important and significant event. And this is when he instituted this ordinance for his church, for his disciples, for, for them and for us on the night that he was betrayed. And it is in close proximity to his death, which takes place only a few hours later right? A few hours later that that happens. And it was intentional what he did. And it was out of the Passover meal, right? That's what they were doing. They were having the Passover meal. And then while he was sharing the Passover, which he says that I've greatly desired to share this Passover with you, this Passover, right before his death, as a symbol of what he was going to do. And then from that, he instituted the Lord's Supper as a perpetual remembrance of his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins out of the Passover meal that he shared with his disciples. Then when he had given thanks, thanks to God, this is what we should do, we should give thanks to God. Doesn't that go along with Psalm 119 that we read this morning as well? I will give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments right? We should give thanks to God. And he gave thanks to God. Then he broke the bread and then explained it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he gives to them the symbol and then he defines what the symbol represents or what it means. The bread represents my body, which was broken for us, broken in the sense that he died on the tree. Not that his bones were broken. We know that not a bone of his was broken, but his body was broken in the sense that he was put to death on the tree for us and that he bore our sins in his body on the tree and that Jesus had a real human body because he had to be made like his brothers in every way except one, he was without sin. And since the children share in flesh and blood, he had to also himself share in flesh and blood. He had a real human body that was capable and able to die and he really literally died on the cross his physical body ceased to have life he died on the cross for our sins and the bread represents the body of christ which is given for us and it is broken for us in the sense that he died on the cross for our sins so he gave the thanks then he broke it in their presence and then distributed it to them then it says, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So there, then the second element is the cup. The cup and the cup has the wine in it. And then he gave that to them as a representation of the new covenant in my blood. That we enter into the new covenant or the redemption covenant the covenant of salvation of grace through the blood of Christ. His blood is the price for which our redemption was purchased. We were ransomed by the blood of Christ. So the cup represents his blood, which has been poured out for us. And then as often as we drink it, we do it in remembrance of him. That this is what it is, a memorial, a remembrance of what Christ has done. And this is a remembrance as often as we drink it. So whenever we participate in this, it is to be a remembrance of these things, which is why I think it would be better for us to do it more frequently, to do it weekly. Weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. Because it, as often as we do it, what is it reminding us of? The, Lord th- the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is it good for us to be reminded of that? Absolutely, right? Absolutely, right? And many times the common objection to not doing it more regularly is, well, if we do it all the time, then it will lose its value and meaning. But that's not true in many other areas of life, right? Do I want to tell my wife I love her every day? Well, of course you do. Well, but I don't want it to be meaningless when I say it. So I'm not going to say it every day. I'm just going to say it once every three months because that's how often we took the Lord's Supper when I was growing up, once every three months. So I'm just going to say it once every three months so that she'll really know that I mean it when I say it. No, that's going to be a horrible way to have a marriage. What about food? Don't we eat every day? Do we get tired of that? No, we don't get tired of food. We love it. We look forward to it. We anticipate it. Well, let's just eat once every three months or once a month. Then it'll really mean something to us. Now, it would really mean something to us if we only ate once a month, but this isn't the way it is in many other areas of life. What about singing? Don't we sing psalms every week? Don't we offer prayers to God every week? Don't we read from the scriptures every week and hear preaching every week? And those things don't become common and disdainful to us because of the frequency of them, but rather we cherish those things. And those things that are good, we should want more and more of. Well, the good fruit of the Lord's Supper is, it reminds us of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a visible picture to us of Our salvation. And so it will be better for us to participate in that more frequently, right? More frequently. And that's why he says, as often as you eat it and drink it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we remember the Lord's death until he comes and we proclaim the Lord's death. Is it good to proclaim the Lord's death? Absolutely. Absolutely. Isn't that good for our children who are being raised in the church for them to see these things weekly the proclaiming of the Lord's death. So that's gonna be a benefit to them and to all of us as well. So there are many reasons in for us to do that in a more frequent way. Okay, so that's the chapter here uh, that they're teaching, that these things are set aside and this is the way that we ought to do it. Now, here I want to address this issue then going forward for the rest of our time of why it is that the churches quit using wine specifically and began to use grape juice uh, during the Lord's Supper. And again, probably most of you, I'm not sure like in Pentecostal churches because I've never been in one, but at least in the Baptist churches, I know what the practice is. And the practice in which I grew up in was that we use grape juice. We use grape juice. Uh, is that common across the board? I fig- okay, I figured, I figured that it was. Uh, but here the confession that we're reading clearly says wine, And I think when Jesus established the ritual, it's without any doubt that he used wine. He used wine whenever the ritual was established. Also, from the early church to the 1800s in America, this was the common universal practice. The churches used wine as the element, uh, bread and wine, unleavened bread and wine as the element uh, in the Lord's Supper. And then that was the case up until the mid-1800s universally in the churches, even in America, still today universally in the churches, except in America, or those churches in other countries that have been influenced by American churches, most churches still use wine today, except in America, in certain segments, uh, that this is uh, different today. And that is without uh, any refutation that this was the practice of the churches. This was commonly practiced in the churches that they used wine. And as I mentioned earlier, it was impossible. The actual process of preserving juice, grape juice, from becoming wine to where it could be stored for any period of time without it fermenting, that practice itself was not developed until 1869. So 1869, there was a doctor by the name of Dr. Welch. Dr. Welch, Welch's grape juice. Oh yeah, ding ding ding. There, that's where it all comes from. Uh, he took and applied Louis Pasteur's process of pasteurization, where they used to pasteurize milk, uh, where you remove the bacterias out of it in order for it to have a longer shelf life. He took that same principle and applied it to squeeze grapes, and then was able to keep grape juice from fermenting, because the bacterias and things that cause it to ferment, which is what changes it from grape juice into wine, and that happens immediately upon the squeezing of it, right? This is the way that it works. Well, that itself was not developed until the mid to late 1800s by this Dr. Welch. Uh, He was the one that was able to do that. Also, in the Baptist churches, they used wine from the 1600s until the late 1800s, whenever wine was substituted with grape juice. Now I've got a couple of confessions that I want to read from, and so that you can see the shift and the change uh, for yourself. We're using the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. So this is a confession that was written in 1689 in London by English Baptist churches And clearly in this confession, they say wine, correct? Right, everyone sees that. They say bread and wine. Bread and wine was used. Okay, another confession. This is the New Hampshire Confession. And this was a confession written in America. Can anyone guess where? New Hampshire, yes, that's right, New Hampshire. New Hampshire Confession, and it was used in the Baptist churches in America. It was written in 1833. 1833, uh, and this is what the New Hampshire Confession says. Um, Let's see on the Lord's Supper. Right there it is. Uh, Let's see. The Lord's Supper, in which the members of the church, by sacred use of bread and wine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self-examination. So there they say bread and wine. This was the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. 1858, 1858, there is a confession called the Abstract of Principles. The Abstract of Principles, this was the founding confessional statement of the first Southern Baptist Seminary, the Southern Baptist Seminary, which was relocated eventually to Louisville, Kentucky, and that's where I went to seminary. It was written in 1858, And in their confession, they say the elements are bread and wine. And this is in the abstract of principles that was there at the Southern uh, Seminary. I'll read from it. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of Jesus Christ to be administered with the elements of bread and wine and to be observed by his churches till the end of the world. So there they say the elements are bread and wine. The point being, is, I'm simply trying to show that in the Baptist churches, they used wine up until a certain point. All of this took place before the prohibition movement. It wasn't until the prohibition movement that there was a shift in the churches from wine to grape juice. Then also, the Baptist faith and message. The Baptist faith and message, which is what the Southern Baptists use today, it's gone through a number of additions. And the first one was the 1925, the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message. And in the Baptist Faith and Message 1925, they say it is prerequisite to the privilege of the church of a church relation and to the Lord's Supper in which the members of the church by the use of bread and wine commemorate the dying love of Christ. So there they also say it is bread and it is wine. And then, it's not until 1963, 1963, that they make a change. They make a change. And you'll notice it's a very subtle shift, very subtle shift. 1963, Baptist faith and message. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer and anticipate his second coming. So the shift was from wine to fruit of the vine. And the reason for the shift is that fruit of the vine can be applied to grape juice, right? To grape juice, to get away from the language of wine. Now, they'll say that, well, Jesus says fruit of the vine, which he does, but when Jesus says fruit of the vine, what's he talking about, right? That's the significance. Is he talking about grape juice or is he talking about wine? And it's obvious, it's clear, that he's talking about wine, because that's what they're using during the Passover meal, and that's what they're using during the Lord's Supper. So fruit of the vine, when Jesus uses it in Matthew and Mark and Luke, equals not grape juice, but it does equal wine. But what they're doing in using fruit of the vine is they're making it broader to where we can say it's grape juice, right? It's grape juice. Now, we might say, well, what does it matter? We're we are straining out gnats in order to swallow camels whole, right? Why is this such a big deal? And really, it's not that there's a huge difference between grape juice and wine. The greater issue is why the church changed. Why did the church change its practice? We always have to ask this question. If there is a practice in the churches, and that practice changes, and Becomes uncommon and instead something else is adopted in its place. We have to ask the question what was the basis, what was the reason for the change? This always has to take place. The first thing we have to ask in terms of this change does the church have the authority to alter the elements? Do we as men have the authority? to say, okay, we see that Jesus used wine, but it's really not that big of a deal and grape juice is close to wine, so we can just use grape juice. Do we have the authority to do that? And I would say no. And once we open up that door, then we're opening up to alter it in any way that we want, right? We can do that. And there are churches that have uh, served Dr. Pepper in the Lord's Supper and doritos in the lord's supper now would we have a problem with that i would hope so but i mean if it's available to be changed then why not dr pepper and twinkies right people love twinkies don't they and dr pepper is really good better than grape juice and i can guarantee you if i take that bottle of dr pepper home it'll get drank by my all my children but they don't really like grape juice so do we have the authority to alter the elements and i say no And really the same reason we ridicule the Presbyterians and the infant sprinklers would be the reason that they would ridicule us for this. Because we say you don't have the authority to change baptism from immersion to sprinkling, but they would say to us, well, you don't have the authority to change the Lord's Supper from wine to grape juice. And yet this is what is happening. So there needs to be consistency. And if it's just fruit of the vine, then can we use pumpkin juice? Because pumpkins grow on vines, right? Or what about watermelon juice? We had some juicy watermelons in there earlier. They grow on vines, could we use watermelon juice? Cantaloupe juice, cantaloupes grow on vine. Passion fruit, passion fruit grows on vine and it has the word passion in it and it's the passion of Jesus Christ. So wouldn't that be a better way of symbolizing the blood of Christ with the blood, with the juice from the passion fruit, right? So, but people will say, no, it has to be grape juice. Well, why does it have to be grape juice, right? So again, any way you slice it, you're pinning yourself into a corner, and it's inconsistency, so we don't want to be inconsistent. Secondly, whenever there's change, we have to ask, what is the change coming from? What is the source of it? So, for example, in the churches, up until the so-called enlightenment, the churches universally believed in young earth, young earth creationism, that the earth was several thousand years of old, and that the earth was created by God about 6,000 years ago. Now in the churches, it is almost universally believed that the church is three or four billion years old and that God used evolution as the means by which he created the world. This is what is believed in many churches today and in many uh, Christian so-called academic institutions. So we have to ask, well, what brought about the change? Why did the churches change from young earth creationism to old earth and evolution? Was it because of study of the Bible or was it from outside influences? And in this case, it was from outside influences. It was from bad scholarship, bad science, lies from the devil that were being purported and that were being accepted within the world. And then the churches said, well, the science community has adopted evolution. And if we don't adopt evolution and make the Bible merge with evolution, then they're all going to think that we're idiots and no one's going to want to come to our churches. And then the church changed their view. They changed their position, not because they were studying the Bible, but because they were letting the philosophies and ideals of the world influence what the church was practicing. Also, we talked about this in relationship to the head coverings head coverings were universally practiced in the churches for many, many years. But then in all of our experiences, we all grew up in churches where it was never practiced. I was talking with uh, Tanner this week and he was telling me about someone that he was reading. And this man uh, was talking about in his childhood, every woman in the church wore a head covering. And then by the time of his old age, There were only two women in the church that were wearing head coverings, his wife and one other woman, and no one else was doing it. Well, what brought about the change? What led to the change? Was it study of the Bible? Was it rigorous understanding of the Bible? Or was it the influence of the world, the culture, the philosophies and ideologies of this world? And it was feminism, right? Feminism and all that it came with, there was actually, they had veil burnings. Veil burnings, where they wanted to gather together and we'll y'all get our veils and we'll burn them, right? This is how much disdain and hatred they had for this symbol of authority. So the church changed its practice, but the reason it changed wasn't because of study of the Bible, wasn't because the church was saying, we want to be more consistent with what the Bible teaches. It was because of outside influences. Now, in our case, we might say, well, we changed we didn't have uh, support head coverings and now we do, but why, why did we change? What led to the change? Why, we were trying to understand what does 1 Corinthians 11 mean? And how does it apply to us? How do we practice this? How do we incorporate that into our faith? And that's the Christian life. That's what we have to be doing all of our life, growing in our understanding. And whenever we see the Bible correcting something that is deficient, then we need to change. But we don't change because the world is telling us that we can't do this anymore. This is the way we have to be. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. We'll remember this because it was our scripture memory from last month. I could put someone on the spot, you know, but I'm not going to. Proverbs chapter 30, verse five says, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Do not add to the word of God. We cannot take away from the word of God and we cannot add to the word of God. It is the epitome of arrogance for us to think, that we can improve the word of God. That God is so deficient in his wisdom, in his righteousness, in his understanding that he overlooked something. He left something out and then I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna correct God and I'm gonna add to the word of God. That is legalism. Legalism is taking away or adding to the word of God. And when we create some standard and we don't have a biblical basis for it, and then we impose that standard on the church, on everyone else, we say that you must do this, then we are adding to the word of God. And when we add to the word of God, what's God going to do to us? He's going to reprove you and you're going to be proved to be a liar. And we don't want that to happen, right? So we cannot add to the word of God as if it is deficient and we need to improve it because God overlooked something. Nor can we take away as if, Oh, this isn't fair. This isn't just. This isn't right. We need to take this away because no one's going to like that. No, we can't do that. What is our goal in life? Just to know what the word of God says. Don't add to it. Do not take away from it. Legalism, textbook legalism is whenever you add to the word of God, a human commandment, a human tradition, and you add it to the word of God and actually it becomes blasphemy blasphemous because you are claiming to have more wisdom than God and in the case of the church's attitude toward alcohol whether explicitly or implicitly if drinking one sip of alcohol is a sin then who committed sin when he was on this earth Jesus Christ did and whether a person says it or not that is what they that is what is either explicitly or implicitly being applied because Jesus drank wine when he was on the earth and the wine that he drank was not grape juice. It had alcohol in it and I will show you, we're gonna look at many passages that prove without any doubt that this was the case. There's no way that one can argue for being a teetotaler or that there is no, uh, no alcohol in the wine that they were having in the Bible. We cannot accuse Jesus of being a sinner. So what happened then in the churches, in culture, in society, so that the churches changed from using wine in communion to using grape juice and those things? And really the foundation of it came from the second and third great, awake, great awakenings in America, which were based upon revivalism and pietism. Revivalism and pietism. The revivalism was the false revivalism of Uh, Charles Finney, and then the pietism was creating this standard of self-righteousness that was contrary to the Bible, that was not consistent with what the Bible teaches. And what they believed during that time was that alcohol was the source of man's sinful behavior. Alcohol was the problem, and if we could get rid of alcohol, then we could cure all of the ills of society. Now, the question is, does the Bible teach this? Does the Bible teach that the reason men commit sin and the reason that society is plagued with sin is because of the presence of alcohol? I'm not talking about the abuse of alcohol. I'm not talking about drunkenness. Yes, drunkenness is a sin, but is alcohol itself the reason for that? Or is it the human heart, right? It's always the human heart. So this understanding... Is corrupt. It is a corrupt understanding of the nature of man, which goes along with Finneyism, because Finney was a Pelagian. And what Pelagius taught Pelagius was a heretic in the 300 ADs uh, in the early church. Pelagius taught that the will of man, the nature of man, was basically good, but the reason people committed sin was because of their surroundings. Their, the, the family, the society, the culture, this is why people commit sin is because of their surroundings. And if you could put them in the right scenario, the right setting, then they would never commit sin. But this is not the case at all. Certainly one's surroundings may contribute to more sin, but the ultimate problem with society and with man is the human heart. It is the dead, corrupt, nature of man Pelagianism rejects that Finney was a Pelagian and this is what they were promoting and they believed if we could get rid of alcohol then we're going to cure all the ills of society actually there were some cities that went ahead and um did away with their prisons and their jails because they were so confident that there would be no more crime in their city Whenever they had the prohibition movement, that there would not even be any reason for them to have jails. Billy Sunday, who was a revivalist at that time, said, "All of the jails are going to be converted into factories, right? And all of the prisons are going to be, all of the bars will be converted into uh, storage grains for corn and for all these things because everything is going to go away." Okay, so there you go. Now. This is what led to the prohibition movement in the late 18 and early 1900s. And we know in America, during the 1900s, they passed an amendment to the Constitution that outlawed all alcohol, right? All alcohol, and this was put into place for the country. Now, this is probably more than you wanna know, but since we're here, I'll, I'll give it to you anyway. Many people don't know that some of the biggest supporters of the prohibition movement was organized crime organized crime, the mafia in New York and the big cities, they were the ones that were funding the women, and mostly it was women who were promoting prohibitionism because probably their husbands were getting drunk. But anyway, they were the ones that were the big champions of the prohibition movement. And many of the organizations, the funding for those organizations was coming from organized crime groups because they all knew if they outlawed alcohol, it would be the biggest business that they could ever have in their life, bootlegging, right? And the sale and distribution of illegal alcohol and what happened during that time? That's exactly what happened. The Kennedys, this is how the Kennedys made their fortune was through bootlegging. The, the father of John Kennedy and the, and the Kennedy clan was he was a bootlegger and this is where they made their fortune and they gained their influence in organized crime and in doing all those kinds of things. So. It was the prohibition movement in America that led to the change in the churches from wine to grape juice because the churches were the ones leading the charge for the prohibition movement. And yet, if the churches were saying you have to be a teetotaler and one sip of alcohol is a sin against God, and yet they are getting together and having communion, and in the communion, what are they taking? They're taking a sip of, of wine. They're committing a sin against God. So how can they be a proponent? How can they be promoting teetotalism, no alcohol at all, when they are gathering together and one of the rituals that they're going through in the church is the drinking of wine? And this is when the churches substituted wine with grape juice so that then they wouldn't be inconsistent and then they could say that we don't ever drink any wine. And when... Dr. Welch created grape juice. His, most of his early clients, it was all churches. This is who he was selling it to, was to churches. And they were using it for communion, right? For this reason. And then it was adopted by many, many churches. Now, again, this is itself legalism, right? You are taking and adding to the Bible because the Bible does not anywhere teach that drinking one sip of wine or drinking one cup of wine or having alcohol in moderation is a sin. The Bible actually teaches the opposite of that. Now, of course, drunkenness is a sin. Excess is a sin, but that's a sin in many areas, and we don't ban those things. But in terms of alcohol, the Bible does not teach it. And the reason the churches changed was because of legalism. So should we let legalism, should we let some standard outside the Bible dictate the way we practice the Lord's Supper? Because when we read it in the passage, it's obviously wine. And the historic understanding is obviously wine. And though we might say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Well, okay. In terms of the difference between grape juice and wine, it may not be that big of a deal. But in terms of the reason for the change, it is a very big deal because we should not let legalism dictate what we do as a church and how we practice an institution that was instituted by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at a couple of passages, and I want you to see that the Bible does not teach anywhere that alcohol is itself sinful if used in moderation, if used in moderation, which is the rule for many, many things in life first is numbers chapter six we'll do these just chronologically numbers chapter six and also this will be used to show that it's clear in the in the bible even in the new testament that when they're talking about wine it has to have alcohol in it otherwise it doesn't make any sense Some of the statements that Jesus makes and some of the statements that the Apostle Paul makes, if it's grape juice, it doesn't make any sense. So it's without any doubt, it's irrefutable that they were using wine. Okay, first, Numbers chapter six, verse one. Numbers six, verse one. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord. He shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds, even to the skin. So here, the point being, this was the case in terms of abstaining from alcohol right because he says wine or strong drink and what is strong drink it's liquor right it's alcohol right this is what it means well when a person is under the Nazarite vow then they are to abstain from those things but not when they're not under the vow Right? Do you see that? It's when they're under the vow that they abstain from those things. This would have been the case with Samson. Samson was under the Nazarite vow his entire life. And this is why he was not permitted to drink wine. And even his mother was not permitted to drink wine while he was in the womb. But he was under it perpetually, lifelong. Other people could come under the Nazarite vow but only temporarily. They would be on it, under it for a period of time, whatever they designated to the Lord. And while they were under the vow, they had to abstain from wine, from strong drink, and even from anything produced from grapes, from the grapevine. But then after the time that they fulfilled their vow, then they're not under that anymore, meaning then they're permitted to drink wine and also to drink strong drink. Of course, not get drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. It always has been. But to drink one glass or to drink, you know, some with this or that, then they are not forbidden from doing so. Next is Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 27. Deuteronomy fourteen twenty-two. Says, You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where He chooses to establish His name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set His name is too far away from you, When the Lord, your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord, your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord, your God and rejoice you and your household. Also, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town for he has no portion or inheritance among you. So here, they're talking about going up to the temple, bringing this tithe to the Lord every year from the produce from the field. With some of them, the distance is too great, right? If they have herds and flocks and they need to take a tenth of them to the Lord and they have to travel 70 or 80 miles then it's not conducive for them to take a 10th of that and go all the way and drive them that way. So he permits them to sell those, take the money, and then when they arrive at the place where the tabernacle is, then they can purchase whatever they need in order to present this tithe to the Lord. And whenever they do that, they exchange the money and they bring it to the place that the Lord chooses. Then he says in verse 26, you can spend the money for, for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. So there he is permitting them to buy whatever they want, whatever they desire from this money. Then they're gonna bring it to the tabernacle and they're going to offer it to the Lord. And a part of that offering it to the Lord is them themselves participating in this feast in the presence of the Lord, along with the Levites. And notice that as well, the wine, the strong drink, whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God. So if drinking any sip of alcohol is a sin, then how were they able to go to the tabernacle in the presence of the Lord and do this? It can't do it if it's a sin. There's no way that God would approve of that. And to bring the Levites in as well and have them participate If it's a sin, there's no way. There's no way that it could be a sin. Now, again, we're not talking about drunkenness. We're talking about moderation. We're talking about sensibly and in doing it in the proper and the right way. Psalm 104. Psalm 104 verses 14 to 15 says, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. So there it is the Lord who causes grass to grow for the cattle. It is the Lord who brings about vegetation for the labor of man so that men can bring forth food from the earth to sustain our bodies and also wine, which makes man's heart glad, to gladden the heart of man. Yes, we could live off of a diet of vegetables and water, but God has given us many different varieties of food and many of them have great taste to them, great quality to them. And this is part of the enjoyment that God gives us in this life, that he doesn't feed us uh, you know, protein paste and, uh, and water only, but the foods which we need to sustain our body, God has designed in such a way that we, at the same time of getting what we need, we also get great joy and benefit. It's pleasurable for us to eat, right? Isn't that the case? When we eat a good meal, we enjoy that. It's not something that we disdain. Who all is looking forward to Thanksgiving? It's just around the corner, right? It's gonna be great. And we all enjoy that because the food is so good because God has in his goodness and kindness, right? He has ordained that our body would be sustained by food and that even in the taking of that food, we would get pleasure from it. Now, again, we can exploit that pleasure, We can use it in a sinful way, but to enjoy a good meal, to enjoy a glass of wine, to gladden the heart of man is not sinful. It comes from the Lord. So if we say it's sinful, then who are we impugning with sin? We're impugning God with sin because God is the one who gave it. Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23 verses 20. Proverbs twenty three twenty. do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Here, the connection is, he doesn't say do not be with drinkers of any wine, but what kind of drinkers? Heavy drinkers, heavy drinkers, which are drunkards. Those who are drinking excessively, right? And they're getting drunk. And who are they compared to? Who are they in league with? Gluttonous eaters of meat. Is it wrong to eat meat? No. But is it wrong to be a glutton? Absolutely. And in the book of Proverbs and in other places in the Bible, gluttony and drunkenness go hand in hand, right? They are put together. But why is the church so strict on drunkenness, but not on gluttony? Why does the church have many rules and regulations, even to the point of saying, one sip of alcohol is a sin, but not one bite of meat is a sin. If gluttony is a sin against God as well, and if we're so concerned with righteousness, then why don't we mandate these as well? Why don't we have scales, and everyone has to weigh every week, and if you're over a certain weight, then you can only eat vegetables and drink water all week long. And just to to be a help to everyone, let's just mandate that anyway. That way, none of us are even tempted with gluttony. But no one does that even though in terms of the Baptist churches, at least the ones I grew up in, gluttony was a bigger problem than drunkenness, right? Especially amongst the pastors. Go look at the porpoise pastors at the Southern Baptist Convention. You'll see many uh, people who are... Okay, yes, Michael said it. They are huge. They are huge and it's it's not right, right? But no one's saying anything about that. No one's banning... Uh, golden corral or the buffets or, or those types of things, but they will speak out about this. Okay, Isaiah 25. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. Now here, the Lord is speaking of this banquet. It's a metaphor for salvation and for spiritual things, but he would not be using something sinful and evil to describe the blessings of salvation and as a metaphor for salvation. That doesn't make any sense. And notice here, 25, 6, Isaiah 25:6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain: a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. So, in describing this lavish banquet, the metaphor that's used is choice pieces with marrow. That's the best meat, right? This is like the ribeye or, or something like that. This is a very good piece of meat. We're not talking about the uh, cow tongue, the, the neck, or whatever else. I don't know, maybe some of you like cow tongue, but whatever people, you know, like, but w- there are pieces of meat on the animal, on the cow, on the pig, whatever it is, that are the choice pieces of meat. And that is what's being used to describe the salvation. It's the good stuff. And then the drink is aged wine, refined aged wine. Why aged wine? Because isn't it true amongst the wine connoisseurs that a vintage or an aged wine is of more quality, it has better worth, more value. It's of a greater quality because of the process and everything that goes into all that. So this is what's being used as a metaphor. If he's talking about grape juice, it makes no sense, right? Aged grape juice, refined, it doesn't do anything. It just stays grape juice and it tastes the same uh, all the time, okay? But in terms of wine, there is an aging process and a refining process that makes it better as it gets older with time, right, Uh, in in that way. Okay, next, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Now, these will prove that when the Bible uses the term wine, it literally means wine. Because there are some who would say, well, wine is just grape juice. But this doesn't make any sense if wine equals grape juice. 9.17, Matthew 9.17 says, Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Here, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. And this is because... An old wineskin is, uh, it's dry, it's, it has no elasticity in it anymore. But when you put wine into the wineskin, because of the process by which it ferments, it causes it to expand. So whatever material you put it into, it needs to have some elasticity to it so that it can expand. And if it doesn't have that, then when it begins to expand, it's going to burst, and then you're going to lose all your wine. It's going to spill on the ground. Right, again, the reason this is necessary is because the new wine into the wine skin is going to ferment. And as it ferments, it's going to need to expand. And if not, then it's going to burst and it's going to spill on the ground. That doesn't happen with grape juice. No one ever, when you open the grape juice bottle, does it ever come shooting out the top? Has that ever happened to anyone? I hope not, because if so, you're not drinking grape juice. Um, this is also the, the case with, with champagne. Champagne Is partially fermented when they put it into the bottle, and then the rest of the process takes place in the bottle after it has already been sealed. And that's why, when if you see it on uh, TV or something, when they pop it, what does it do? It comes shooting out the top because there's pressure in there from the fermenting process, right? Didn't did y'all when you were in school? We made. We did that one time in our chemistry class. You made alcohol or did, did the fermenting process there in uh, a, a, whatever it was there in the chemistry class. And there were some people, if they filled it too much, you'd come back the next day and it would have blown out everywhere. And it was all over the floor and those kinds of things. And this is because of the fermenting process that takes place, it causes it to expand because of the chemical reactions taking place within the liquid. So that's why you don't put new wine into old wine skins. So obviously here, the only way this makes sense is if it's fermenting. And the fermenting is the alcohol that is within the wine. Okay, Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So John came living this ascetic life, neither eating nor drinking, living a very... Uh, strict diet out in the desert. He wasn't eating much. He wasn't drinking any uh, alcohol, drinking probably water, whatever it was that he was drinking. And what did they claim him to be? He's a demon. He has a demon. Otherwise, why would he live such a bizarre and a crazy life like this? Then the son of man, he comes. And in terms of the way he's interacting with society, it's the opposite of John. John's in the wilderness He is separated. He's out there living this bizarre, peculiar life. And yet they say he has a demon. Then Jesus comes. He has the opposite kind of life. He's eating and drinking. And they say, what about him? He's a glutton and a drunkard. Now, if he's only drinking grape juice and water, then why would they call him a drunkard? Why are they calling him a drunkard other than he's drinking wine? Now, did Jesus ever get drunk? It's a false charge because he would never get drunk because he never sinned and drunkenness is a sin. But he did drink wine. Otherwise, why are they accusing him of being a drunkard and being of glutton? And they accuse him of these things. Now, the point that he's making here is it doesn't matter how you present the message. If people hate the message, they will find a way to demean the messenger right? The the commonality between John and Jesus wasn't their lifestyle in terms of what they ate and drank or where they went. The commonality was their message. They both were preaching the same message and the people found a way to criticize the messenger so that they could reject their message. In the case of John, he's a demon. In the case of Jesus, he's a drunkard and a tax, uh, he's a drunkard, a glutton. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. And this is, you can never win with these people. It doesn't matter what you do. If you stand up, they say, why are you not sitting down? If you sit down, they say, why are you not standing up? If you speak loudly, they say, hey, you're too loud. If you whisper too much, they say, why, why is he so quiet? Why won't he speak louder? If you preach for 30 minutes, it's not long enough. If you preach for 45 minutes, it's too long. This is what they do. They're always nitpickers and they're gonna find some way to criticize the messenger because they hate the message and that's what they want to get at. But in this case, it doesn't make any sense that they're accusing him of being a drunkard if he's only drinking water or if he's only drinking grape juice and he's never drinking alcohol. Okay, John chapter two. John chapter two, verses one to 11. John two, verse one. says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw, out, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So here at the wedding, when Jesus turns the water into wine, the head waiter says to the bridegroom, typically at the wedding, people serve the good wine first and then the lower quality wine later after people have drunk freely. But in this case, you save the good wine for last, right? It's reversal of what has happened because of what the miracle that Jesus had done. But it was indeed wine right it was indeed wine because this is there's a difference between the good uh, a higher quality and a lower quality of wine okay then one last passage 1 Corinthians 11 and verses 17 to 22 we read 23 to 26 earlier but 17 to 22 says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. So here, what are we talking about? Lord's supper, right? When you come together to eat the Lord's supper. So he's talking about this institution of the Lord's Supper. Then he says, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, if they're using grape juice in the Lord's Supper, then how are they getting drunk on it? Does that make any sense at all? No, it only makes sense as if they're drinking wine. Now, he's chiding them for this, because of their excess and because of their disregard for one another. But the point being is that when they're taking the Lord's Supper, it's obvious here that they're using wine. Otherwise, what are they getting drunk on? Right? Because you don't get drunk on grape juice. Okay, so those are the passages that clearly teach that the Bible does not condemn all drinking of alcohol. The Bible condemns excessive drinking of alcohol or alcohol without moderation, that is a sin. Drunkenness is clearly a sin and drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. However, in moderation, then it's not a problem. And in the Lord's Supper, then it's not a sin. And if we say it's a sin, then we are contradicting Jesus and we are actually calling Jesus a sinner and we cannot do that, right? Now, one of the other things that people will say, is we shouldn't use wine because what if there's someone who's overcoming drunkenness, a a recovering alcoholic? We don't want to tempt them to sin. But we are talking about a sip of wine that is so inconsequential that if a person falls off the wagon because of that, they've got greater problems, right? They have greater problems. But then also, are we going to apply that same standard for everyone? What if someone's uh, recovering glutton? Are we going to ban all uh, fellowship meals because we don't want to tempt the recovering glutton uh, with food? Are we going to say that we can only drink water and have vegetables because we don't want to tempt these people? What about women? Should we ban women from the church because some men struggle with lust and we don't want to be a stumbling block to them? Isn't it true that some people worship the moon and the sun in their former life? Should we ban the sun and the moon because some people idolatrously worship those things? No, of course not, right? We just have to teach and promote what is true and right. So of course we condemn drunkenness, we condemn gluttony, we condemn sexual immorality, but that does not mean that the problem is itself alcohol or is itself food or is itself women. It is the sinful heart and the way that people pursue that. Now, of course, in terms of women, women should dress modestly. But we shouldn't regulate that women uh, wear all black from head to toe and they cover their whole face and only their eyes are shown. We can't do that. And we can't regulate people's diets and what they eat. I can't go around. What, what, who, would, who would permit that? For me to go to your house and go through your fridge and make sure you don't have Twinkies in the fridge uh, in the cabinet up here or ding-dongs or whatever else that people like. What about sugar? Some people are diabetics. Should we ban all sugar from church because we don't want them? It could be detrimental to their life. No way. How are we going to drink our coffee if we don't have sugar and cream? No, No one wants to have that. So no, it's moderation. Moderation, we shouldn't flaunt it, but we should do it in the proper way. And in terms of the Lord's Supper, I do believe clearly the Bible teaches that when Jesus instituted, it is without any doubt that he used wine. This is what they're using in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is what the churches used universally up until the 1800s. And in the case of the Baptist churches and apparently the Pentecostal churches and other churches, the shift took place in America to grape juice because of the prohibition movement, which was founded on unbiblical principles. And I don't think we should let unbiblical principles determine and dictate what we do as a church and how we practice the Lord's Supper as was delivered to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so... That's that, okay? Also, there's more, this is something other people don't know, there's more alcohol in NyQuil than there is in communion wine. More alcohol. The alcohol content in NyQuil is closer to hard liquor, like whiskey or vodka, than what's in communion wine. So are we gonna ban NyQuil? What are we gonna do when we're sick, right? How are we gonna sleep all night long? We gotta have that NyQuil. Uh, And it's very helpful to us. So again, these arguments are nonsensical. They're nonsensical, they're irrational, and they're unbiblical. And we just need to practice and do what the Bible says in the right way. Okay, so with that, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, how it uh, teaches us and gives to us, Lord, everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, we do not want to take away from your word, and Lord, we do not want to add to your word. Lord, for us to do so is for us to become a judge and arbitrator over your word. Lord, to set in judgment against you as if you have ordained something, Lord, some precept that is unrighteous or that, Lord, you had an oversight, a failure, and you forgot to add into your word something that is necessary for our righteousness. Lord, we can't do this. How can we judge you and your word and escape? And so, Father, I pray that we would be content with the clear teaching of the Word of God and, Lord, to practice those things that your Word teaches us. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from any excess, Lord, whether that be in regards to food or drink, Lord, from gluttony or drunkenness. Lord, we know that those are sins, and, Lord, we don't want to commit sin. But, Lord, at the same time, we don't want to accuse of sin where the Bible is silent. And so, Lord, may we walk in the straight paths of the Lord, Lord, not departing to the left or to the right, Lord, not into legalism, Lord, not into licentiousness, but, Lord, doing those things that are pleasing to your will. So, Lord, help us in these things, and, Lord, we thank you for the Lord's Supper that you've given to us, Lord, as a reminder, a remembrance of your death and resurrection. And, Lord, may we not be hung up on these things that are so minor and minute in comparison to the reality of of what it is that you've given to us. Lord, you've given to us this supper as a reminder of your death and resurrection. And Lord, as a way of proclaiming your death and resurrection, Lord, until you return. And so Lord, may it be that for us and may it be a benefit, Lord, to our faith and may it be a proclamation to our children and to any unbelievers who would be among us, that they might come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they might believe it For their salvation lord give us safety as we travel from here today and lord we pray that you bless the remainder of our lord's day and that you would bring us back together again wednesday lord to study your word and it is in christ's name that we pray amen